eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's time to stop making excuses. The peace of mind you get after a colonoscopy is worth it. It's the best way to prevent and detect one of the deadliest cancers. In fact, your doctor can remove precancerous polyps during the procedure if necessary. That's right, before it even turns to cancer. No buts about it. Get a colonoscopy at 45 and follow up every 10 years or as recommended by your doctor. Find a location or schedule now at avera.org slash colon. Episode 276 of the Bowery Boys. A murder on Bond Street. Who killed Dr. Burdell? Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are presenting a tale of a murder most foul. A mystery that dominated the newspaper headlines in the winter of 1857, involving the brutal killing of a dentist named Harvey Burdell in a townhouse between Broadway and the Bowery, between them in more ways than one, shall we say, in a townhouse on Bond Street. This is a tale, among other things, of a city that is growing larger and more insecure in a certain way by the arrival of so many strangers. This was a murder that shook the city and the nation. How could somebody who was so seemingly respectable be so brutally murdered in his own home? Now, this is truly a murder mystery in the tradition of a page turner or a television drama. Or a board game. It's going to feel <laughs> yes. a little bit like Clue. Oh, it will. It's true. However, this being real life, it is very complicated. And so what we're going to be doing today is laying out these particulars of the crime, the very unique investigation that is very unique to the mid-19th century, and of course, some of the main suspects. Was this a crime of passion or a crime of jealousy? So join us as we investigate the mysterious circumstances surrounding the murder of Dr. Burdell. All right, Greg, you said that this is a page turner. Mm -hmm. We are turning the page to page one. Yes. In which you are going to situate us a bit. You mentioned we are going to be on Bond Street um, in the 1850s and something very devious has gone on. That is correct. The place is Manhattan in wintertime, a crisp morning on January 31st. 1857. And we are going to 31 Bond Street. This is the block between Broadway and the Bowery. Today, Lafayette cuts through it, but Ah. back in the day, it didn't. Uh So it's between Broadway and the Bowery. 
It was a 26-foot-wide townhouse. As described in the New York Times in 1850, quote, It is of brick with marble stoop, four stories high, and differs not materially from the rest of the buildings on the same block, all of which are several years old and were in their day first class and fashionable. Now... They are simply genteel. I'll explain the context of that in a second. Okay. Now, located on the second floor was the dental office of one Dr. Harvey Burdell. The following is an excerpt from a 1919 book called Famous Mysteries by John Elfrith Watkins. At about eight in the morning on Saturday, January 31st, the office boy, entering the operating room with a scuttle of coal, had difficulty in opening the door. Pushing against some object that obstructed it, he looked behind it and was terrified to find the body of Dr. Burdell with head against it upon the floor. The corpse was covered with blood that had gashes from many wounds. The dead dentist was fully dressed There was blood everywhere, on the floor, on the walls, on the furniture, as well as in the hall and upon the upper stairways. The furniture was upset and there was evidence of a desperate struggle. The gas was still burning at full head. Burdell's features were so distorted that at first his face was almost unrecognizable. About the throat, a great welt bore evidence that the dentist had been strangled and distributed over his body were 15 stab wounds, narrow and deep, as if made by a long, slender dagger. One murderer had apparently thrown about his neck the cord that had strangled him, while the other had delivered the dagger thrusts. The office boy in that excerpt, his name was John Birchall, He was horrified by this discovery. He ran to the dining room, and there he found the lady of the house, one Emma Cunningham, who was breakfasting with her family, along with a boarder in the house named George Snodgrass. Now, there was another boarder that we should mention named John Eckel, who had just left 31 Bond Street about an hour previous to this. Now, some reports say it was George, others that it was the housekeeper that broke the silence by screaming, someone has murdered Dr. Burdell. Whew. Thank you. That was that was tense. Mm-hmm. So let's review here. We have a formerly upscale house mm-hmm. on Bond Street, which has, by the 1850s, gone a little bit down market and is now hosting, among other things, a dental practice uh-huh. along with a boarding house. Yes, several boarders along with a business on the second floor. Okay. The person who was murdered was the dentist who had his operations here on the second floor. Uh-huh. And you mentioned that the lady of the house, who was running the boarding house, yes. was serving breakfast at the time along with her children. Yes, her children who lived alongside her here at 31 Bond Street. Okay, and then a few tenants, mm-hmm. a Mr. Snodgrass. Yes. And rolls mis- right off the tongue. <laughs> Although another tenant named John Eckel had been been there earlier in the morning and had just left the house. And then we have the office boy coming in, finding the body behind the door. Yes. So that is our setup. And this is all taking place and unfolding on the morning of January 31st, 1857. Mm-hmm. Emma Cunningham, George Snodgrass, and John Eckel would all be suspects in this case. But before I get to their stories... 
I need to take a few moments to focus on the location of this crime scene. So 31 Bond Street. Which we've spoken about in a number of other shows as being a very affluent area well, back in the 1820s and 30s mm-hmm. uh, when many upscale townhouses were built here. These are not tenement buildings. These are townhouses. Yes. Yeah, so around the 1820s, 1830s, you know, by this point, New York had a grid plan mm-hmm. in place or, or they were developing the city around a grid plan. Plus, you had all of this new wealth coming into New York, Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to the Erie Canal and these other places. So you had all these new members of the wealthy class looking for new enclaves in which to develop homes. And before this, all of New York was pretty much just below Canal Street. And in our recent Tribeca show, we talked about the wealthy moving into the homes around St. John's Park. Yeah, that was the first exclusive neighborhood in New York. So in that area of Tribeca. Well, a, a second wealthy district developed a little bit further north, just around Astor Place, thanks to a man who would, of course, give that intersection its name, John Jacob Astor. So John Jacob Astor, who had developed a fortune in the fur trading business, also owned a lot of land right up here near today's Astor Place. Yeah, and developed it for people of wealth who wanted brand new homes. There's even some evidence of some of these properties that he developed today. For instance, Colonnade Row, which is on Lafayette Street, right off of Astor Place. That was an Astor development, and even some members of the Astor family even lived there. But Bond Street is a few blocks south of Astor Place. It wouldn't specifically be like an Astor development, although its proximity near here and, of course, near the new developments over at Washington Square Park would draw additional families to this neighborhood who wanted to build new houses. Right. So Bond Street, Great Jones Street, up at Astor Place, over at Washington Square Park, these were all home to upscale developments. Yes, I'm going to put one more point on the map here. Okay. Now, today, Lafayette Street actually goes from Astor Place down between Broadway and the Bowery. But this was originally a street called Lafayette Place, which had been carved by John Jacob Astor and went from Astor Place just down to Great Jones Street, which is one block north of Bond Street, okay? So that's why when you just mentioned that, that 31 Bond Street was between the Bowery and Broadway... And I immediately tried to cut you off and object. You said, no, 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 no. At the time, it was. At the time, it was, because it didn't go all the way down. So this whole area is very upscale, hot place to live in the 1830s. But the crime takes place in 1857. Yeah. So Bond Street happens to intersect with the Bowery. And 31 Bond Street is actually quite close to the Bowery, uh, which, you know, over the years uh, into the 1840s and into the 1850s, this would represent more working class immigrant populations, and not to mention a lot of vice that would spill in onto the Bowery by the 1840s. So the these wealthy families who had built these new houses, they began to move out of Bond Street and off of Lafayette Place. So these old homes that were still there became boarding houses and businesses. So this was a situation with 31 Bond Street when it was purchased by Harvey Burdell in the 1850s. So Burdell bought the building. He must have had some money. What do we know about him? Well, let's preface this by saying so much of what we know about the cast of this story, there's so much like misinformation because this was such a celebrated case in the newspapers that 
every ounce of like conjecture and rumor was published. So mm. there are so many different versions of his biography. There was a lot of fake news out there. <laughs> a lot of fake news, faked news, and just like incorrect information. Thanks to recent historians, such as Benjamin Feldman, who we'll be speaking about later in the show, we've been able to settle on a few core facts here. Okay. So Burdell was born January 8th, 1811, in Jefferson County, New York, kind of near the border of Canada. He and his brothers had to fend for themselves at a fairly early age. And as adults, Harvey and his brother John gravitated to a rather unique occupation for the day. That would be dentistry. How did they get into dentistry? Well, by word of mouth, of course. Oh! (laughs) I should have seen that one coming. Anyway, so brother John mm-hmm. actually got into dentistry first, went to school in Philly in the early 1850s. Harvey followed him there and then would later follow him up to New York by 1834, where they would set up a dental practice. The Burdell brothers would become prominent New York dentists. They would have separate offices on Chambers Street. You know, I had, looking through the old penny presses of the day, because this is the era of the penny press, I had a ball looking through old classifieds of the Burdell brothers. Like, they would put in ads. uh, They would advertise their dentist practice, dental practice in the classifieds? Yeah, like, expounding upon their dentist skills and uh, their qualifications in the profession of dentistry. I'm sort of bracing <laughs> for for what dentistry was like, Greg, in the 1830s. Tell me. Well, fortunately, uh-huh. this happens to be a decade of dental revolution. Beforehand, it was not really respected or regulated in any way. You pretty much took your life into your hands when you went to a so-called surgeon-dentist. In 1838, the brothers Burdell wrote a book called The Observations on the Structure, Physiology, Anatomy, and Diseases of the Teeth. Mm. Now, just two years later, I mean, they're in the heart of like where it's at in dentistry. Because in 1840, the American Society of Dental Surgeons, which was the first national organization, formed at 17 Park Place. In New York? Yes. I mean... There's a deep well of dental history to drill into, (laughs) but that's for another show. Anyway, back to the Burdells here. Imagine you have these two brothers Mm -hmm. and they have adjacent but competing practices right next to each other. You can imagine what that might do to your relationship. Brother John was actually better known. He'd come to New York first, after all. But Harvey often took a lot of his business which was not just accidental on the customer's part, people who might have been confused by the brothers. Harvey sometimes encouraged the confusion. On top of that, John was a respected family man. Harvey was what they called a sporting man back Mm. in the 1840s and 50s, hitting the dives and the brothels of the Bowery, living with abandon, earning a rather surly reputation. It was even believed that he would have dalliances within his dental office. That would be one way that he would interact with patients. Okay. A later article on the Burdell case from 1905 described Harvey Burdell the following way, quote, he was quarrelsome, penurious, greedy of appetite, and fond of the company of women. He was often sued by women and frequently appeared in one court or another. He was eccentric. He disliked men, but was very fond of guinea pigs. 
All right. Well, you're not really painting a very attractive portrait of Mr. or Dr. Harvey. <laughs> no, no. Uh, he's a Lothario. He's deplorable in many ways. And yet he sounds like he's successful enough in his dental practice to buy this house yeah. on Bond Street. Well, by 1855, he had the Bond Street townhouse, which doubled as a boarding house to make a little extra money. On the second floor... The back of the building was the dental office, and his living quarters were on the front half of the second floor. On the first floor was a reception area, and then other rooms up in the third floor and even in the attic were rented out to boarders. Many of these boarders were often friends of Dr. Burdell that he would meet out while he was congregating on the Bowery in various places. Now, sometime that very year, 1855, is when Dr. Burdell met a woman named Emma Augusta Cunningham, who would become the landlady at, here at 31 Bond Street, and as we'll learn, so much more. Yes, Emma, by this period in the 1850s, was already a widow in her early 30s, and she had five children. She had three daughters and two boys. She was born Emma Augusta Hempstead on August 15th, 1818, on today's Lower East Side. Now, she had a very religious upbringing, strict moral compass being given to her, handed off by her parents. Mm -hmm. According to the author, Benjamin Feldman, in his book, Butchery on Bond Street, her father was a robe maker. He was also very devoted to the religious teachings of John Wesley. And they lived, at least initially, and her father worked in Corlear's Hook on the Lower East Side, that area that juts out into the East River, uh, which was a very you know bustling place and changing quite a bit in the 18-teens when she was born and in the 1820s. It had grown notorious uh, for the prostitution that was thriving here. So much that that neighborhood would give it a nickname, Hookers. But that's a different story. <laughs> so Emma would, would spend her time here as a very young child, although the father would move his business across the river to Brooklyn Village, uh, near where they lived in today's Fort Greene. So the family moved to Brooklyn in 1822. Mm -hmm. About a decade later, when she was 19, she married George Cunningham, uh, who was 20 years older than her. And they rented a home near Union Square. And this would have been around the time that it was just developing, right? right. Union Square it was Union Place, probably. And quite upscale. Mm -hmm. And they had a number of children, but they faced uh, financial strains and difficulties, moved back to Brooklyn to live with family. And in 1852, so just a few years before our story starts, George died leaving behind a $10,000 life insurance policy to Emma, which was not a small sum. Mm -hmm but also all of these children to take care of. So what did she do? This is 1852? Yeah, well, she went off to find a new husband. So what were the circumstances around her first meeting Harvey Burdell? Well, it's not entirely clear, but let's just say that by 1855, we know that they were spending time together. They were even traveling together. And later that year in 1855, she had become pregnant. Presumably with Dr. Burdell's child. That's right. And presumably, that would also lead to a marriage proposal. Mm -hmm. But this brings us to the subject of Emma and Dr. Burdell's tensions over what the meaning of their romantic relationship was. Mm. It seems that for years, Emma wanted to get married. She wanted that stability. And, and Dr. Burdell really didn't want to be pinned down like that. And in fact, 
her pregnancy led to an abortion that year, possibly performed by Dr. Burdell himself. Presumably here at the house at 31 Bond Street. Right, where she had moved into with her children and at first was paying Burdell rent to live there. So then by 1856, this is a little confusing because she's a tenant of Burdell, but she's also a lover, possibly former lover yeah, of Dr. And, Burdell. Yeah, and you know, when you set up this whole crime scene at the beginning, you mentioned the lady of the house mm-hmm. um, because she was obviously much more than just a boarder in the house. She was also running the house. She was in charge of the help at the house. She was eating with Dr. Burdell, and they were acting in many ways like a married couple, even though they weren't. Uh, They were also fighting throughout 1856 incessantly. This was not a happy household. So Emma was just deeply unhappy with this idea that Harvey was not interested in marrying her and providing her with some level of comfort. And stability. But she was also upset about other things, like all of these dalliances that you mentioned that he was having with female, quote unquote, patients who would come in to, you know, have work done. Bringing them into the Bond Street house while she was there. There were many of them, in fact. Then there was also uh, the case of his female cousin, to whom it was rumored that Burdell was going to transfer the whole home. Well, this would certainly make for some... Awkward meals, awkward conversation around the dinner table. So much so, in fact, that Dr. Burdell started taking his meals elsewhere. In fact, mm. the, the night before uh, the discovery of the crime, so January 30th, Dr. Burdell did not eat dinner with everybody else in the townhouse. He went off, as he had been doing quite often, to eat at a hotel over on Broadway. Anything to get out of that house. So 31 Bond Street is a house of uncomfortable tension in January of 1857. Now, the day before the murder, on January 29th, 1857, I mentioned Dr. Burdell took his cousin on the tour of the home, along with a cook, Hannah Conlon. Now, this was an inspection of sorts, and Emma was not around for it. When Emma Cunningham returned, she learned that the woman was, in fact, Dr. Burdell's cousin, to whom he was about to transfer the deed of the home. The next day, January 30th, 1857, Harvey headed off to that hotel for dinner, although it was said that he was also heading to Brooklyn to visit family. And at 10.30 that night, a neighbor who was living at 36 Bond Street as he was preparing to go to sleep, heard a scream loud enough through the rain, a scream of murder. He didn't know where it was coming from. And then the next morning, on January 31st, 1857, Dr. Harvey Burdell was found dead, strangled and stabbed 15 times in his own home, found by his office boy, John Birchall. And now... Believe it or not, the story gets weird. We get into the investigation of the murder of Dr. Harvey Burdell right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Now, we're all familiar with how mystery stories are supposed to operate. We've all watched dozens of Murder, She Wrote episodes, Law and Order, mm-hmm. right? We, I mean, it's it's a huge component of pop culture, This the understanding of the basic procedures of crime solving, you know, bringing in people for questioning to police headquarters and respecting basic rights of the accused, the innocent until proven guilty, and then, of course, Jessica Fletcher solving it at the last minute in a plot twist. <laughs> With her gigantic magnifying glass, always pointing out the culprit in the last three minutes of the show. Well, that is not exactly how it played out in the 1850s. I find the mechanics of how this story plays out going forward to be absolutely bonkers. Okay. So, so <laughs> Because? Well, because, well, Birchall, 
the assistant, the boy assistant, Mm -hmm. the office boy, sent out for the police. And the coroner and the district attorney immediately came over. So this is in the first moments of the discovery of the body. On the morning of the 31st. Yes. Within the hour, there was a row of police guarding the door. Throughout the day, hundreds, if not thousands of onlookers gathered outside of Bond Street as it began to rain that afternoon. So you have the street traffic of Broadway and the street traffic of the Bowery. All of those people like discovering what's what's happening over there. Why are all those policemen gathered in front of that building? So throughout the whole day, there would be just this procession of curiosity seekers walking by the building. And the doors to 31 Bond were being blocked by these officers? Yes. Mm -hmm. Was somebody in charge of what happens next? Well, in these cases back in the day, the coroner would be in charge of the crime scene. They would inspect the body, so they went upstairs, inspected the body, but did not remove it from the house. Police then began searching the house for a possible murder weapon, But of the people who would then be considered suspects, the people within the house, Emma, for instance, her children and those other boarders, they would remain in the house. They would actually be kept in their rooms under house arrest. They couldn't leave the house. So this was a power that the coroner had that they had to be that they had to remain at the scene of the crime, although sometimes they were put into jails around the city if there were if, if this was not possible but they had to stay on the premises despite this however which is kind of amazing none of these suspects the people who lived here would actually be personally inspected until a few days later so like that's great so they could really destroy evidence yeah or if they had like scratches or bruises or something like that like this was many of them were healed up by the time they were actually personally looked at The inquest into the crime would take place here, not at a police headquarters, in the house itself. That afternoon, 12 jurors, inquest jurors, would arrive here at the parlor to begin investigation. So they would all gather, all of these people, dozens of people, in the parlor downstairs from where the murder occurred and where the body was at. This has taken like an Agatha Christie turn. (laughs) So wait, you have dozens of people gathered in the parlor, in the Victorian parlor. Yeah. But hold on a second. They were gathered that afternoon? That afternoon, yes. Within hours of the body's discovery. By the speaking of the body, it had been moved from the crime scene where he lay to his bedroom where Burdale's body would remain for days. Wasn't there an autopsy performed? Yeah, it would be performed there in his bedroom. Uh, There's even a bit of forensic science going on here because they would bring in microscopes in the search of the house. They would find a bloody dagger in Emma's room. A dagger? Was this the murder weapon? That would have made this so much easier for them. But in fact, they because of inspecting it under a microscope, they found that the blood traces belonged to beef blood and not human blood. Oh, it was a dagger that she used to cut the meat. Yes. Mm -hmm. Got it. But there were other traces of blood throughout the house that were discovered, including some traces of burned clothes that had been covered with blood that were burned in a stove in the attic. Mm. Okay, so pulling back from one second, it's the day that the bodies discovered. Yeah. You have all these people gathered inside. You have thousands outside in the streets. 
but the police are doing an investigation of the structure. And at the same time, there's a jury down in the parlor that is doing what exactly? What are they? Who are they listening to? Well, it's information gathering. They'll begin interviewing witnesses and possible suspects with the larger purpose of trying to find out who might have committed the crime so that they can be indicted and then they can then go to trial. Is essentially like what's happening here, which is extraordinary about it is it's all happening in this fairly narrow townhouse where the crime occurred very close to the body itself. So the inquest jury begins interviewing witnesses, beginning with the housekeeper, the aforementioned Hannah Conlon. Then Emma herself, Emma Cunningham, would take the stand, the makeshift stand, if you will, here in her house. And it was during her testimony that she revealed an extraordinary detail that had been withheld before now. She claimed that she had been married to Harvey in a secret ceremony, then suddenly producing a marriage certificate. She was married this whole time? And this would be verified with other witnesses who claimed that they were around when they had this secret marriage ceremony in the West Village. This would mean, among other things, that Emma would be the beneficiary of his not inconsiderable estate and bank account, but also would become the owner of the townhouse of Bond Street. She wouldn't get the whole thing, just to be clear, She would, but she would get the widow's portion of the estate. Mm-hmm, yes. Part of it would also be shared with his surviving family. Now, as I mentioned, no one was allowed to leave the house that evening, not the servants, not Emma or any of the boarders, including some of these men who would soon have suspicions placed upon them. This being New York, of course, this case filled all the newspapers. It was by far the only thing people were talking about. New Yorkers were enwrapped with this case. And this being the Penny Press, I'm sure that they were very fair and balanced in their coverage of this. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, no. Um, Emma was immediately demonized as a wanton, conniving woman with possible illicit designs upon Harvey. But of course, Harvey Burdell himself was also chastised. His personal life opened up for criticism in the press. You know, it was as though people were looking for reasons to say that he deserved to be murdered uh, since he hung out with so many disreputable people and had such an unpleasant personality. Okay, so Emma was being demonized in the press and she was obviously a main suspect yes, here. Yes, the main suspect. The main suspect. Uh-huh. But you did mention that there were two other male boarders who yes. also seemed suspicious. I mean, there were a few suspects, but I'm going to just mention the kind of the two key ones. One of them was a boarder named John Eckel, who was described as, quote, a big man physically, preferring the society of women and fond of food. <laughs> um, he was believed to, at least rumored to be a lover of Emma Cunningham. Testimonies from others would soon place a haze of suspicion on his behavior and demeanor, like as though possibly he was an accomplice. One may testify that Echel had spent every night in Emma's bedroom, exhibiting a rather unusual behavior. Now, I should mention that Echel loved canaries. and so, As in the birds. As in the birds, and had 17 canaries in the house so on top of all this that's going on there's all this there's all these birds like chirping 
throughout the whole story because there's canaries everywhere. The canaries were not allowed to leave the house either. <laughs> no, they, they were under cage arrest. <laughs> but every night, uh, a maid would see Echol going into Emma's room and would take a canary with him into a gilded cage. So this wow. is a very a, a, an interesting, suspicious, weird detail. That's just how they rolled back then. <laughs> um. Echol, by the way, would eventually be kept prisoner in a holding cell at the 15th Ward Station House. And then later, not to jump ahead, but when he would be finally be charged with a crime, he would be locked up in the Tombs Prison, the infamous Tombs Prison down on Five Point, and on very scant evidence, I should say. So that's Echol. Who is who is the other male boarder who was in a pickle? Uh, someone who was very popular with the press of the day, uh, a young man named George Snodgrass. He was 18 or 19 years old, the son of a clergyman and another boarder who lived on the third floors. Newspapers claimed that he had a, uh, that he was rather fond of Emma, although he seemed obsessed with her and not the other way around. And we would, of course, find that uh, he was actually really smitten with Emma's daughter, Helen, who also lived in the house. Now, Snodgrass's room was searched. Um, what they found, um, they found this was not used in the murder, but it was in all the papers. He, they found a banjo. Right, so he was he, a banjo he player. Was, he was a banjo player, and he also fancied himself to be a poet, although apparently a very bad one. Uh, okay. So, at, so in those early days, the press characterized him as being this like wind-tossed romantic. But something else very curious came up in the search of his room, which was a large number of feminine undergarments, which were strewn about the room. Many, it is believed, to have been owned by Emma's daughter, Helen. Okay, but to be clear here, yes, Snodgrass's underwear collection, mm-hmm. we believe, belonged to Helen. He was fancying... Yes. The underwear, or he was fancying Helen? No, I mean, he, he, was, he was smitten with Helen. It's believed that Snodgrass stole the underwear... In fact, may have had other plans for these garments. Several writers have speculated. Now, I mean, it's it's impossible to know this. And so really, this is a, a, just a, a wild speculation. But many, many writers have speculated that he possibly even wore them in private. According to the New Yorker, in a richly written article in 1935, Quote, they found the room of Mr. Snodgrass full of knickknacks and feminine underwear. Whether the underwear, as one faction declared, belonged to the Cunningham girls or whether, as others asserted, it was the property of Mr. Snodgrass, whose peculiar pleasure it was to wear such fripperies, the young man rapidly declined in public esteem. And thus ends possibly the kinkiest passage in Bowery Boys history, Greg. I'm pretty Let's sure. I'm on. pretty sure on that. Thankfully, anyway, yeah. it was brief. There are a few other suspects, including Emma's own children, including the four, aforementioned Helen. However, even with all these other implications and other possible suspects, the stories always seem to lead back to Emma. Now, this inquest lasted 14 days. So 14 days here in the parlor at 31 Bond Street. Finally, the inquest jury declared that Emma should stand trial and that her partner in crime was most definitely John Eckel and George Snodgrass was also 
involved in some way. So they were all three of them thrown into the tombs down in five points. The inquest went on for 14 days, but what about his body? Clearly, it wasn't sitting up there for two weeks. No, I forgot to mention the insanity of Harvey Burdell's funeral. So that took place just a few days after the murder on February 4th, 1857 at Grace Church. So just a couple blocks north of Astor Place. On Broadway. Burdell was not even a parishioner here, and this was one of the most exclusive churches in town, perhaps the most exclusive, and one of the craziest days in the church's history. Thousands of people mobbed the streets, filled the streets, just looking, hoping to get a view of the casket. Reading a copy of the New York Herald from the following day, it's honestly like nothing else is happening in the entire world. It gives the impression that New Yorkers were concerned with literally no other business, not even their own business. Uh, It was, you know, this was so captivating, a murder case. A mob even descended on the newspaper offices at the New York Herald near City Hall. People were so fascinated. They, They almost burst into the place, ripping the newspapers off the printing presses. Good God. Well, to be they fair, they were out of control. <laughs> well, to be fair, many of those people may have been newsies who wanted to get those papers as soon as possible because they were going to make a hefty profit off of them because it was the hottest story of the day. So the funerals held at Grace Church, but then he was laid to rest immediately following the funeral. Yes, he was buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And meanwhile, there hasn't even been a real trial yet. No, no, no. The, in the days leading up to the trial here, everyone, of course, there were so many opinions swirling around. If it's the only thing people are talking about, you can imagine all of the wild conjecture that's happening. And you had huge camps of people who were defending Emma and who said that that her reputation was being unfairly trampled in the press, while others accused her of being a bloodthirsty harlot. So you had you had factions all over the city. I'm sure that that there was some kind of gender divide as well yeah. on those opinions. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it seemed like the prosecutors, you know, had a pretty tidy little case because here they had two lovers, it seemed, Emma and John, who it seemed had conspired to murder Burdell for the money that she, as his widow, would inherit. Emma was held down in the tombs for two months awaiting her trial, which was held that May. Her lawyer was a man named Henry Clinton. And uh, the New York prosecuting attorney for the case was the elegant and rather crafty A. Oakey Hall, who would later move on to become mayor of New York from 1869 to 1872. And Clinton, as Emma's lawyer, insisted that Emma not testify in her case. Hmm. I imagine she was better off being the the silent, sympathetic widow all in black, watching everything happen. Yeah, she could maybe engender some sympathy amongst the jurists. Well, the thrust of the prosecution's case really surrounded the physical evidence. There was so much evidence, but there was also so much hearsay, and there was so much blather in the press that had been invented, really, by by journalists to sell papers. So there was a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of like things polluting the story. So really... The prosecution decided to focus on the physical evidence on the case because they had to link Emma to the murder. Mm -hmm. And the chief piece of evidence really was the fact that the coroner had determined that the murderer, whoever had given uh, Burdell those 15 stabs, was left-handed. And Emma was left-handed. 
I mean, there's a lot of people that are left-handed. I'm left-handed. <laughs> Did you kill Burdell? <laughs> exactly. And Clinton, um, and Emma's lawyer, Clinton, countered by pointing out that Burdell was actually so much larger and heavier than Emma. And furthermore, that Emma suffered from rheumatism. Uh, so there really wasn't any way that she would have been able to commit that act and to really deliver those forceful blows yeah. uh, to his strength. body. She right. just couldn't do mm-hmm. it. Plus, they pointed out that she was married to him, you know, even though he had forced her to keep the marriage a secret and he was also abusive toward her, you know, she still would never have killed her husband. Did they have any additional evidence against her? Well, do you remember mm-hmm. that? I mentioned earlier that the day before the murder, Dr. Burdell had been giving a tour of the of the property right. to his, his cousin, his cousin, who was going to possibly have the, the deed of the property transferred to her. Well, during the trial, a, a conversation between Emma and her housekeeper emerged. Emma said, who was that woman, Hannah, you were showing through the house today? That was the lady who's going to take the house. Then the doctor is going to leave it, is he? Yes, ma'am. And when does she take possession? The 1st of May. He'd better be careful. He may not live to sign the papers. That's almost absurdly damning evidence, if you ask me. (laughs) It doesn't look good. And then meanwhile, another piece of evidence cast doubt even on her claim that she was married to Burdell because going through the, the, the various papers, a sort of settlement or a contract was found. It said, quote, in consequence of the settling of the suit now pending between Emma Augusta Cunningham and myself, I agree as follows. One, I extend to herself and family my friendship through life. I agree never to do or act in any manner to the disadvantage of Mrs. Emma A. Cunningham. Signed, Harvey Burdell. So that also raised all kinds of questions, like what was this settlement how could she then claim to have been married to him? But of course, that claim of marriage put her in a position to, to inherit his fortune. So it really didn't look good for Emma now. No. However, throughout the trial, Burdell didn't really come out of it looking good either. Because Clinton, Emma's lawyer, painted a really nasty picture of him. You know, as this notorious womanizer, having sexual relations with his female patients, especially fond of the younger ones. Um, He had been a nasty boss. He barely paid his housekeepers a living wage. He'd once broken off a marriage engagement on the wedding day after demanding that the father of the bride pay him $20,000 to get married to his daughter. And that had happened uh, before he even moved to New York, before he got into dentistry. But when that came out, obviously that did not make him any more likable. No. And then let's not forget the fact that he was horrible and abusive to Emma, and he forced her to have a number of abortions, it seemed, possibly that he performed himself in his dental chair. So Clinton did not have a hard time painting Burdell as an unsympathetic character, even though the prosecutor, Aoki Hall, compared Emma to Lady Macbeth and to, quote, that queen of Hungary who bathed her feet in the blood of 63 knights. Okay, so that's those are some strong statements. Uh, did they influence the eventual verdict? Well, on May 9th, the jury met for only two hours. They returned 
pronouncing Emma not guilty of the crime of the murder of Dr. Burdell. It seems that at the, in the end, the actual murder case against Emma was simply too weak. There wasn't enough evidence. And despite the fact that popular opinion, to a certain degree, was also on Emma's side, the press was largely outraged by this injustice, by somebody who'd clearly gotten away with murder. On top of it, charges against John Eckel and George Snodgrass, charges were also dropped. So no one ended up being guilty of this crime. So I guess then Emma could then move on to inheriting Dr. Bedell's fortune. Well, so that was a separate issue being taken up by a surrogate court. So a separate court was deciding what to do with his fortune. And it was really, you know, coming through the evidence and trying to figure out um, the legality of their marriage and what to do about the estate. And they had some work to do because a number of things seemed suspicious about their alleged wedding. First of all, why would Dr. Burdell not have even told his own lawyers that Mm -hmm. he had gotten married? And then secondly... There was a question of like the witness to the wedding, you know, during the inquest, uh, when the Reverend Marveen, who had allegedly married the couple over at the Dutch Reformed Church, he was brought to the murder scene and was shown the corpse of Dr. Burdell. He didn't even recognize him as somebody he had married in the past year, nor did he actually really recognize Emma He only recognized her daughter, Margaret Augusta, who Emma claimed to have been a witness to the marriage. He also remembered about the marriage that the groom had requested that he not publish the marriage. That seemed like a very odd request to keep the marriage secret. And in the surrogate court, the Burdell family was actually fighting for control of his estate. They were the ones saying Emma was not really married that this is a fraudulent marriage certificate. And their lawyer, Samuel Tilden, who would go on to become the governor of New York and a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. he put forth another theory that Emma had actually staged a fake wedding, that she was actually having an affair with another tenant, John Eckel, who you've mentioned, he mm-hmm. of the Canary fame, and that Emma actually disguised John Eckel in a toupee and a fake beard to match that of Dr. Burdell. That they then went off and got married. She was actually marrying John Eckel, forged Dr. Burdell's signature on the wedding certificate, and her witness, her daughter, was in on the secret. For the purposes of then offing Dr. Burdell so that they could then share in the inheritance. That's right. The widow's share of the inheritance, still not full because there was no heir to the two of them. But then, as Emma started to appear in court and in public, she started to show signs of being great with child. There had already been rumors of her being pregnant, which she started herself, actually, by telling the prison guard back in the tombs when she was back being held there before her murder trial. She had explained to her guard, Mrs. Foster, that she was pregnant with Dr. Burdell's child. And then she told the press that, yes, in fact, she was carrying the child of her dead husband. So once again, Emma was the cause for sympathy and compassion 
That would also mean, however, that Emma would now be entitled to all of the inheritance of her dead husband. Because there's there's an heir now. That's right. But I'm confused because I don't think that she was getting along very well with Dr. Burdell. So was she actually pregnant here? Let me read to you from the, the front page of the New York Daily Times, Wednesday, August 5th, 1857. The Burdell murder, complications of the mystery. Mrs. Cunningham re-arrested. A fictitious childbirth. Public excitement about the great Burdell mystery, almost dead through lapse of time and lack of public interest, was revived yesterday with tenfold vigor. Mrs. Cunningham re-arrested. Why? When? How? It will be remembered that shortly after the conclusion of the trial of Mrs. Cunningham for murder, a rumor prevailed that she was with child by Dr. Burdell, and that in due time a living pledge of the union will be produced. The article continues and explains that Emma's doctor, a Dr. Uhl, had initially confirmed her pregnancy in meeting with her, Mm -hmm. but then after spending time with Emma, he'd grown suspicious of the whole situation and had contacted the prosecuting attorney, Aoki Hall. Once they realized, actually, that Emma wanted to fake a childbirth, for which she had offered Dr. Uhl $1,000 for his participation, Aoki Hall, the prosecutor, orchestrated this elaborate plan. It was carried out through her physician Mm -hmm. to, quote, borrow a newborn baby from Bellevue Hospital and then have Emma procure it. I mean, they set up a fake residence over at 190 Elm Street, which is part of Lower Lafayette today. Emma picked up the baby in a basket and then she headed back to 31 Bond Street where she faked the childbirth uh, with the help of her nurse and with another doctor who she had brought into the scheme. She did this with full theatrics, Greg. Let's just say that, I mean, it involved moaning. There was phony placenta. There were like buckets of lamb's blood that were stained on the sheets. I've seen off-Broadway productions that were less elaborate than this. Unfortunately for Emma... The child had been marked uh, under her arms with uh, something called lunar caustic. They used it in the hospital for identification. And so once Emma tried to present her as her own child, she was immediately arrested and she was taken back to the tombs. And then what happened to the poor baby that they were using as a prop here? Oh, but the baby was returned uh, to her mother, a woman named Miss Elizabeth Anderson, Although the baby didn't go out. Yeah, she went out with a parting gift. She got to keep the lovely clothes uh, that Emma had purchased for her. Mm. Uh, and interestingly, actually, Miss Anderson would then engage the child to be put on display at Barnum's Museum, uh, for which she was paid $25 a week and received rather lackluster reviews. <laughs> well, she, she was on display as the phony child? As Well, she was a real child. Well, she's a real child, but as the phony, as, as the phony Cunningham, Cunningham Burdell, Burdell baby. Exactly. Okay. I mean, she was a sensation. So, of course, P.T. Barnum paid to put her in the museum. But that's, <laughs> that's not a story with like a lot of legs. I can imagine that that... Uh, there that, were two legs. <laughs> but I can imagine that that... Interest in that story waned pretty quickly, I'm assuming. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Meanwhile, Emma's down in the tombs, 
And her attorney, however, Clinton, had the the charges dropped, calling it entrapment. But let us not forget that while this is all going on, the surrogate court was trying to decide whether or not Emma, Uh the marriage was valid and Emma should inherit the fortune. All of this... I'm sure I'm sure it influenced it, right? Yeah, the baby madness really like colored things uh, for the judge. So this was a gambit that failed. A total fail. The judge turned against Emma, ruled that the marriage was not valid, and thus she wasn't actually able to inherit any of the Burdell fortune. And so, alas, Emma went free. Penniless, but free. She would move to California, remarry, and many, many years later, move back to New York City in 1887, where she moved in with a niece, and she died that year in September. And she, too, was buried at Greenwood Cemetery. Both Emma and Burdell, however, were buried in unmarked graves. Whatever happened to 31 Bond Street, the crime scene here? Well, it turns out that the the house was actually inherited by Harvey Burdell's brother, Lewis, who was also a dentist. He sold it in 1861 for $17,500. It remained a boarding house until it was sold in 1888, when it was demolished and replaced by the six-story building that stands there today. But that is not the end of the story. Before recording, we just got off the phone with author Benjamin Feldman, who in 2007 published the book Butchery on Bond Street, Sexual Politics and the Burdell-Cunningham Case in Antebellum, New York. Now, in 2000, Greenwood Cemetery's historian, Jeffrey Richmond, wrote a book about the cemetery's history. That book was purchased by Feldman, who at that point was unaware of this story. Feldman then spent the next seven years researching and writing the story, the fuller story, giving full context to the story of Emma and Harvey. In 2007, as a result of this book and the research, Feldman and the Greenwood Historic Fund together funded the erection of two gravestones for both Harvey and Emma. Emma's tombstone actually reads... Emma Augusta Hempstead Cunningham, 1818 to 1887. May God rest her troubled soul. Now, you can visit Greenwood Cemetery today and visit the two tombstones. They lie about 100 yards from each other, uh, but makes a fine conclusion to this particular story. Of course, Feldman himself has a second book about Emma Cunningham, which just came out this year. Called Evil Emma Down Mexico Way published by New York Wanderer Press. And that tells about Emma's extraordinary adventures or misadventures out in California. Let's just say that the drama didn't stop when she left New York. Now for some fascinating images from Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper and other contemporary sources, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have those and some other information and, and, of course, other stories about New York City history. We'll also mention that part of the inspiration to do today's show came from the fact um, that it is part of our new NoHo walking tour. So we have a new walking tour at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Brand new tour uh, that debuts this weekend called 
murder and mayhem, glamour and greed in 19th century NoHo. And 31 Bond Street is one of the main stops. Here's another here's another reason to visit our website. Uh, we will have news of a brand new live show. We'll, we will be returning to the Bell House on January 11th, 2019, and we'll have more information in the coming weeks. But check out our website for more information. And you can also go to cityfarmspresents.com slash BKPodfest for that. We will be part of the Brooklyn Podfest uh, for more information. We look forward to seeing everybody there at the Bell House on January 11th, 2019. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. Uh, because of you, Greg and I are able to devote all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys podcast. We quite honestly, could not do it or pay the bills without (laughs) your support. So a huge thank you. Those who support us on Patreon will get access to our side project, the Barry Boys Movie Club. In a few weeks, we'll we'll release the newest episode, which will be a look at the film Anti-Mame in honor of the 60th year, 60th anniversary of its release. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Wait, 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 Greg, stop the music. Stop the music. Um, uh, We forgot one thing. What? Who did it? <laughs> um, Emma probably did it. <laughs> you think Emma did it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like no... I mean, it's. I think it's pretty likely that she committed this murder, most likely with John, although there's a side chance that Snodgrass was involved. But yeah, I mean, I'm p- pretty sure that Emma did actually kill Dr. Harvey Burdell. But that is just... That's armchair detective here. I'm going with the canaries. And on that note, have a great New York week. Bye-bye. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.